Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. All I ever wanted was a little love. I want true romance. It's true. Hello and welcome to True Romance. This is Devin Leary. This is Carolina Barlow. And today we have our very first triple guest coming on the podcast for the third time. Yes. Mother of the pod, some would say. Some would say mother of the pod. One of the mothers of the pod. Okay, some would say one of the mothers of the pod, all right? <laughs> um, so she's not only my mom, but she's also a New York Times bestseller and author of the novels The Children, The Good House, Outtakes from a Marriage, and the memoir An Innocent, comma, Abroad, A Space Broad. She's also the writer of the Modern Love essay Rallying to Keep the Game Alive, which was adapted for the Amazon modern love tv series and her book the good house was recently adapted as a motion picture starring sigourney weaver okay sigourney as we've discussed the only person named sigourney in the world sigourney weaver so this movie the good house recently premiered at the toronto international film festival international read it and weep and last but not least her new novel the foundling will be released on may 31st so by the time this episode comes out, it will be available for purchase anywhere you get your books and anywhere you get your audiobooks, I think. So welcome, Mom. How are Thank you? Thank you, Deb. I'm great. And I also wanted to add to that. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, the Good House is having its United States premiere in two weeks at the Tribeca <gasps> Film Festival. And Ooh. you're invited, Deb. You can come. But yeah, oh, very exciting come. news. In the middle of my book tour, I get to go see the screening of... Uh, another book that I wrote. So that's all added that it is. Um, it's coming to the Tribeca film festival, uh, June 16th, and then it'll be in theaters everywhere in September. I think. Can't okay. Wait. wait, I'm definitely coming to the premiere. Holy shiz. I got to get an outfit together. I can't believe uh, you I was just thinking that Devin, kind of you should bring back I? the Hervé Legger wrap dress. Yeah. I'm going to wear a bandage dress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask how it feels to see your beautiful words adapted into a performance by Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney. <laughs> Siggy. Um, by Siggy. It feels, it feels great. I didn't write the adaptation. So, um, you know, there's definitely, I think most authors of books, um, you know, when they see the adaptation, it's a different take. But, you know, um, even an audio book, for me, when I hear, when I first hear the audio book of any book I've written, I'm a little bit, oh, you know, even the way they read certain sentences is a little bit different than the way I heard them in my mind when I was writing them, especially dialogue. So it's always interesting to me. And this, I really did. I think I watched the, we watched the only screening I ever saw. I think I watched with you, Deb. And yeah, and I, I loved was it. was very pleasantly surprised. They did a wonderful job. And so, yeah, it's exciting. Wait, so what's your favorite adaptation? Like, is there a movie adaptation of a book or a show that adaptation of a book that you have loved? 
Oh my God. Well, one that actually ties in a little bit to the book. I <laughs> what um, if you said Harry Potter. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, it's the sorcerer's well, stone. Now that you've asked. No, <laughs> sorry. Um, continue. There's a book that was written by Theodore Dreiser in the 1920s, and it was called An American Tragedy, and it was adapted to a film starring Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. And now I'm drawing a blank. It's a Place in the Sun. A Place in the Sun. I oh my just God. watched this. Okay, That's weird. I literally last time I was... It's so tragic and romantic. But that book was like 600 pages long, and I read it for the first time while that I was working on this book. So I was reading all books written in the 20s. I, I really loved... I'd seen the movie quite a few times, and... Um, the book was a little too long. I liked the adaptation better because it just took, well, it took the more romantic part of it. But Theodore Dreiser wrote that book because he, and I think it's in the introduction to, you know, the volume I have anyway, he had become aware in newspaper headlines that um, it was not unusual and it was becoming increasingly less unusual for young women to be killed by their lovers, their, their boyfriends. Still pretty common, but can, sorry. Well, sometimes by their husbands. And when they were caught, they found out the motive for the uh, crime was she was pregnant. There was no abortion. Wow. And, yeah, this is very timely right now, but um, they. this is something, when people talk about reproductive rights, it's not something I really want to get into because it's not really what I want to be battling with people on this book tour. My book is all about reproductive rights, though, uh, about women who are not allowed to have children, really, is what my book is about. But what people, when people talk about women who don't have access to abortion, women have always had abortions. And most people think of the fallout as a botched abortion and the woman dying, which happened mm -hmm. all the time. But they don't think of other very serious things, such as if you don't have access to an abortion, you can't afford a child, and you're partner who fathered the child is married or wants to marry somebody else, doesn't want to marry you, especially in the old days, you had to be married to have children or you'd be sent to an institution. Um, so anyway, you would be very much at risk of, of being killed or, you know, or sent, you know, it depends and sent away somehow. So that's, um, uh, I guess that's a long answer to your question. It's, it's a, it, that's a very good adaptation. But that was, they, they really focused in on the romantic part. Poor Shelly Winters is the victim in this, the pregnant girlfriend. And I was kind of like, oh man, Shelly, you're just a- Shelly, why do you have to get in the way? I felt yeah. the same way, to be honest. Kill. She's a buzzkill. She's a buzzkill. But in real life and in the book, you know, Theodore Dreiser wrote, um, he was one of those, in those days, people wrote these very- um, they really believed in writing about social injustices. They, he was one. Certain authors did. And there were certainly plenty in those days. So he wrote it, uh, you know, kind of to expose that. Um, so anyway. It's interesting. Shelley Winters looks like they made her look mousy and kind of like a secretary. Like, and she's kind of like, hey, what's going on? I really like you. What are you going to do? I'm pregnant. Like very much like that. When you see pictures of her actually at awards shows or out and about on the town, she is freakishly beautiful. They oh, just, yeah. She always did real... play that kind of, well, she was so great, but she always did play this kind of, you know, yeah, often like a comically dowdy kind of mm -hmm. silly person. But yeah. She was beautiful. And Montgomery Cliff, most people don't know this, and forgive me if I've already said this on the pod. He was on Fire Island with the gays having a ball as they did even in the 20s. And he looked onto his partner or friend on the beach and said, what about Romeo and Juliet? But it takes place in gang wars in New York. Get out. He came up with the idea for West Side Story. And his partner on the beach was the what's his uh, name? Steven, not Steven Sotomayor. <laughs> I, I, I have know. no idea. But how wild is that? I never knew that. None of this conversation has really been in my wheelhouse of references as I just turned off Married at First Sight season six that I'm rewatching for the second time. <laughs> so, Mom, your new book, The Foundling, speaking of the 1920s, as we often are, um, tell us about your new book. My new book is called The Foundling. It's set in 1927, and it was actually inspired by my grandmother, your great-grandmother, um, who I knew... Uh, 
a little bit when I was a young girl, but the last time I saw her, I was eight years old and she and my mother became estranged. I was always very curious about her and I knew she was raised in an orphanage and I never knew why she was an orphan and what happened to her parents. So when I joined Ancestry over 10 years ago, that was one of the first things I wanted to find, you know, where, what happened to her mother? Where was the orphanage? I still don't know. I haven't, uh, orphan records are harder to find than many other records. There's no birth record I could find of her, but the first record I found was in 1930 a census record where I discovered she was working as a stenographer. She was 17 years old at a Pennsylvania institution called the Laurelton State Village for Feeble-Minded Women of Childbearing Age. And it's a long name of a place. It's, I thought I was pretty offended and kind of disgusted that they would call, I, I understood it to be a place for people with intellectual disabilities and that they would use a slur to describe them was shocking. But I immediately found out that the word feeble-minded as well, as well as the words idiot, imbecile, and moron were, were actually clinical terms in those days. They weren't slurs yet. And then I had a brief moment of feeling like kind of proud of this grandmother. Like she obviously, they, they gave her some kind of vocational training where she grew up and she had secretarial skills. And there she was at this very highly esteemed um, modern uh public government asylum for young women with what I thought were intellectual disabilities. And then I did a little bit more research and I learned that where she worked was actually a eugenics asylum, one of many in this country in the early 20th century. And the novel that I ended up writing after a couple years of research, and it took me about six years to write it, The Foundling is about, uh, it, it, the, the main character is based on my grandmother. She's also called Mary. That was my grandmother's name. And she goes to work at this, be, you know, be, beautiful on the outside asylum for a very, very charismatic female doctor, which was the, you know, in real life, my grandmother worked for this very amazing doctor. And um, when she, certainly after she arrives, she discovers that a friend from her childhood orphanage is actually there but not as an employee. She's an inmate, as they were called in those days. She was, um, you know, one of the quote unquote feeble minded inmates. And Mary knows she didn't have a intellectual disability. So that's basically the lead into the story, I guess. It's such a world that hasn't been explored yet. And something that I only, well, that's not true. I, I knew roughly about it because my great grandmother, which I, I almost feel like a betrayal talking about this because our family is kind of secretive, but I mm -hmm. do think it's important to acknowledge that this was happening and that it was only a few generations ago. But my great-grandmother went to the hospital with pains. She grew up very poor. Yeah. Um, we grew up in Kentucky, our, uh, a lot of my extended family or my ancestors. And she went to the hospital with um, pains. We've all had like very painful periods just in my genetics. And she left after having a hysterectomy. So I had no idea how common that was and how a lot of hospitals were doing that to people living in poverty as a form of eugenics. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think was... it's rooted in the fact that we as a country and a society believe that poverty is a choice or a failure of an imagination or work ethic, et cetera. We're telling people who are poor currently that they don't matter by, you know, a lack of um, social systems that are supporting people to get out of just states of being uncomfortable. We really treat it as a character choice. And I mean, you look at how Republicans are treating the poor. I'm specifically because I hate her so much thinking of Ivanka saying that people like to work for their money <laughs> and that she knows more about hard workers than AOC, which makes me want to take a baseball bat to her car. But <laughs> I, I really think about my great grandmother really suffered because of this. And when you think about hormonally, what can happen to your body if you get something like that at a young age, she had episodes for the rest of her life. And it's kind of that classic form of gaslighting to women, right? Like you treat them horribly, you do something irreparable to them, and then you call them crazy and you lock them up. And um, I think about kind of the generational trauma that that caused through my family. And I think about how when we think of eugenics, we think of, or I think a lot of people think of Nazi Germany, 
We have no idea that Nazi Germany actually took that from watching the United States and how they treated their black population primarily. And we have no idea how much that was tied to poverty as well and specifically to women. I'm so sorry for this lecture, but I am pretty I'm I'm new to this. I don't I didn't had no idea any of this. And it's so horrifying to me how we treated women um, as mentally unstable for something like PMS. And you're absolutely right. And it's interesting that you feel a sense of betrayal. And I, I've had to struggle with that in writing and talking about my book because my maternal side of the family was um, they were very poor. My grandmother, you know, was obviously extremely poor. She had no family or money. So, yes, they would um, often women were given hysterectomies that um, without knowing it. Um, yeah, she, she's lucky she got one, actually, if there was if she had any signs of being unstable because she, you know, alternatively could have been put in an asylum. Anyway, it is, it was, um, I, there's so much I found out about it, but one thing I, um, one thing I've struggled with throughout is that is the lack of, we were not taught about eugenics in my generation. I don't think in your generation, it, it, public schools in the United States just didn't teach about it. You're right. It did inform the um nazis um it wasn't just the way we treated uh black americans at that time it was very much the first the first group of people who were um euthanized as they called it in in nazi germany were the quote-unquote feeble-minded that was that that was the first marginalized group and that you know so so um there were people who came to the hospital where my grandmother worked and i did write this into the story from, it's really creepy, but like delegations from other countries in Europe and Asia came because it was kind of a model for what a lot of countries wanted to do. And just so it's put into perspective, this was not, and I feel like, you know, I've, sometimes I've had feedback from reader, early readers, and I had to put, I wrote an author's note at the beginning, but this was not a fringe kind of hate right. group. This was the law of the land. It was the law that founded and and supported these hospitals. There was one in most states for um, that were just they were they weren't even hospitals. They were kind of warehouses for just to keep people who were fertile from having children. They could leave after menopause. These women, but just to people, um, I've had a little. I've had wonderful reactions to this novel, uh, early reactions, reviews. Um, but early on, I had some people feeling that Mary going to work at the asylum, people didn't believe she could be that naive going to work there. They seemed to think the asylum was like almost like a cult and, and not a place that was actually quite embraced by every, you know, by you know, the governor's wife was on the board. Famous eugenicists, by the way, included in the early 20th century, included Virginia Woolf, Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, Alexander Graham Bell. I could go on and on. Um, it I had was, no idea. It was very much the the really the, the there was like positive and negative eugenics. But the bottom line is um, prior to the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, during the Victorian era, there was a lot of focus on the environment. Remember, you know, Dickens wrote about these horrible inner city right. some and stuff. And there was a lot of work, uh, good work done to help poor people because of they were in an environment that didn't, you know, that, that made them very ill or whatever. That really switched with this what they called social Darwinism or eugenics. And it was just this idea that it very much tied heredity with criminality, with criminal tendencies, mm -hmm. with alcoholism. And some of these things we do know there is a genetic link, but, but their idea was, especially American eugenicists, really wanted to focus on negative eugenics, which was keeping the unfit from having children at all. They thought they could prevent future crimes and future poverty by preventing the birth of future criminals and, and, and poor people. So there was sort of a, an attractive veneer. They never really, you know, showed what went on in these places, uh, which was often forced labor, very abusive treatment of these very crowded places where they just shoved these people. Mm -hmm. And, um, the place where my grandmother worked and in in the book the foundling these women there were a small percentage of women who were truly intellectually disabled 
in this time later on it did become a, a good school for the intellectually disabled but it was but the majority of the women there were what they called the morally defective or the morally feeble-minded they were girls um at that time any deviant sexual behavior and right sex before marriage sex outside of marriage gay sex so much of what we now accept as normal was at was deviant and if you were a female who had engaged in that if you're or if you said that your uncle molested you and you're 12 you were seen as having a defective brain just for having engaged in that there was a great i wish i had the list there's a great list that was used by doctors of behaviors that indicated that a person might be a woman might be feeble-minded and every single one of them was like everything we all did in college yeah all, all our friends but one of them freshman was, year yeah, yeah one of them was actively seeking sex that sh yeah that was it not yeah. not you know seeking you know sex in public or like sex in well, a pornographic it was actively seeking sex was considered a sign of a mentally defective brain that's so what my could, ex said when i asked him to have sex in a bathroom in savannah georgia <laughs> just kidding <laughs> but he rejected yeah, that I know. Um, well, people have you know different ideas but anyway so i might talk I, I think i went into too much detail no no but. that's perfect no because i think that is what is most disturbing to think about when learning about this stuff too is like oh that like of course that would be me like that just kind of shakes you to to understand that you could have been institutionalized for something that like we now consider so normal but i also think what is great about the book is that because you're such a deeply brilliant storyteller oh. as <laughs> i've known since i was a little girl <laughs> you are able to like give people awareness of this very misunderstood time in our history by drawing people in with like an incredibly riveting story and You're and so something nice. something that is like like anyone could read this book and just be sucked in and it's like very thrilling very exciting and there's so many relatable themes in it but it also helps you understand this thing that is almost like incomprehensible to a lot of people and that this was normal and like you said people want to believe that it wasn't normal but it was at the time I want true hacks is back for season three and so is the official hacks podcast in each episode hacks creators lucia and yellow paul w downs and jen stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the emmy-winning comedy series You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. One of the core pieces of the book and kind of like an overarching theme is female friendship. 
And that's something we talk about a lot on the podcast. We get a lot of like listener questions about female friendship, I guess, because they think Caroline and I are friends, which <laughs> might be a misunderstanding a great on their part. Charade we keep putting on. Um, but <laughs> even though Devin slips sometimes by being objectively cruel to me. <laughs> well, that's just, our, that's just our banter. That's just our vibe. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask, did you base the relationship between um, Lillian and Mary on any of your own personal experiences with female friendship? Yes, they're based on you and Carolina. I don't know how you didn't see that. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not going to ask who's who, but I have a feeling. Like most women, my female friends are super important to me. They're the people, you know, who, who I love very much. So I, I couldn't pin down one friend, but I have a lot of, as we all do, experience with female friendships, with, with loving friends, with being betrayed by friends. So no, it wasn't a thing, but truly sometimes our friendships um, are, are put to the test by, you know, loyalty yeah. by this. She truly was. And this is another thing I wanted to say about, the, I, I wanted to write about the 1920s because I love that era. And I always yeah. associate it with like decadence and, you know, jazz and like this kind of devil make hair attitude. And that it was that for rich white people. Yeah. And, and that, so, you know, Zelda Fitzgerald, all these, you know, Daisy Buchanan, they were rich people. The, the behaviors they did drinking, going to, uh, they could have sex outside of marriage. They right. could be gay, but a poor woman doing those exact same behaviors was considered a menace to society. And that yeah. was something I didn't really know until I really started exploring this book. And so what I, what people I think don't get when they question the main character, Mary, and why she does, you know, why would she go work there? Why didn't she quit? I think they, I didn't, I too didn't have a full understanding of how dangerous and vulnerable a poor woman of any race, you know, certainly people of color would have it worse, but my grandmother was white. And if you didn't have a job in those days, you were a vagrant. That was illegal. You could end up arrested. You could end up in an asylum. She was very vulnerable. She was very lucky to have this job. And she never finished high school. She got vocational training to be a secretary. So why would she question a movement that right. the people who ran our government, you know, enforcing this and very famous scholars and writers were writing about how wonderful it was. It was going to change society. I'm sure. I don't know. I know she, apparently my grandmother never spoke to anybody about it, but I know she was a very lucky person to have that job. Uh, she had it when the depression started and it was a government job that was, those, you know, if you didn't work for the government, you often didn't have a job in the depression. So, um, I think the people who judge I've, I've just, you know, had a few little bit feedback of like, you know, why didn't she, you know, go work someplace else? It just shows a little bit of lack of understanding of options available to people like my grandmother and the main character in this story. You couldn't just go like, oh, I think I'll go work on Madison Avenue in advertising. You couldn't really do that. I was reading about Rosemary Kennedy, which I also think is interesting, though, because she did come up in obviously like a rich family but they had such a reputation to protect. Right. And she had her, her mother, Rose Kennedy had a unfortunately really hard birth with her. Um, and so Rosemary Kennedy lacked some oxygen when uh -huh. she was born and they started to see she was developmentally a little slow, but she also was what I think was bipolar. She had rapid mood swings and she also seemed to have um, epilepsy. She had seizures. Yes. A lot of people did in those days. Yeah. And then she showed, like you were saying, Anne, signs of just like a little bit of reckless sexuality. Mm -hmm. She was sleeping around and and her father decided to get her a lobotomy. So for the rest of her life, she had to be taken care of. She struggled with words. She and and you think about, yes, like Devin said, your own upbringing, your own chapters of your life and how I, you know, no, I, I don't love the random sexual encounters that I had in college. Not like too proud of them, but I do recognize them as like what brought me here. Mm -hmm. um, what like, <laughs> but this th those men are the reason I'm sitting here today. So that's a, that is who I'm going to thank at the Emmys um, is those experiences. But you think of how much mental illness was stigmatized till almost recently, I want to say. 
Well, yes. And also, the okay, so the Rosemary Kennedy story is interesting because that highlights another thing many people don't know about that time, which was that women, so she was an adult woman, but she didn't have agency. And it wasn't just because she had uh, an intellectual disability. No adult women did. If you had a father, he was your guardian until you became married. And then your father, I mean, your husband was your guardian. So even though women had the right to vote in 1920, it wasn't until the 1960s that women had, for example, the right to have their own name on their credit card. The money brought into a marriage in the early 20th century to the mid 20th century became the husband's, if he, even if it was all the wife. So um, there, there was, this is also going, so much speaks to what's going on today, but it was women were not considered uh, fully uh citizens or humans um the way men were they were they were they were children they had the right you know so this so i was quite fascinated with the doctor who ran the asylum she was based on a real woman she came from a wealthy family she was one of the you know when many women didn't go to college in those days she went to medical school when very few women did and i was quite impressed with her when i first read about her and in, in my book i i wanted to have the reader uh, meet her and, and be impressed with her because she was impressive. I, I based her a little bit on Margaret Sanger, who, as we all know, founded Planned well, Parenthood and did many things. She got her hands dirty. She that, worked but... in tenements. And now she's being kind of vilified for being a eugenicist, which she was. She was also a racist. She was. Um, so this is something. So, so I started researching her life a little bit and it, it, I, I didn't quite understand that Margaret Sanger was very well educated and she was working really hard, you know, to help women who didn't, who had less than she did, but her husband was her guardian. She could vote. She couldn't be on a jury. No wow. woman could. Yeah, she, there, so just, there was just so much that I thought when I, so this Dr. Vogel character, she doesn't have a husband and her father's dead. She has more agency. She almost has as much agency as a man. She doesn't have as much, but when she was a doctor, when she was running this very highly esteemed asylum, which started in the early you know, 1910s, she couldn't vote. And so she was writing public like um, health kind of dossiers for politicians, for senators and congressmen to pass laws for people with disabilities. But she couldn't vote for those people. Wow. She would watch. She would watch the guys that dug the ditch, you know, the, the leading the, you know, that built the road to the school. She'd watch them go vote. She wasn't considered a adult enough to vote. Wow. And that, you know, so I just with Margaret Sanger, too, I thought, oh, well, imagine how she must have felt watching her husband go vote when, you know, she was she was definitely doing good work for for women um, before she could vote. And she was very well educated. You know, she she was considered a child in the eyes of the law. So I hope that helps people. I mean, I, you know, certainly, um, you know, the Americans have this very like strong need to have it's there's a very black and white people are good or evil. yeah, there's yeah. no gray area. And the, people really have a hard time historically putting people into the context of their time. Right. And understanding, oh, um, you know, this woman was not an adult when she was 18 or 20. She was considered legally her husband's child. It just it yeah. helps if a little. No, and I have to say off of that, off of that incredibly eloquent thing, this might sound <laughs> productive, <laughs> but if you love an anti-hero, having read this book, if you love an anti-hero, if, if you are into The Sopranos, The Game of Thrones, The Mad Men, The Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad the, and basically... Ozark, if you like Jason Bateman and his tucked in shirts in Ozark, I do. you will love this book because Dr. Agnes Vogel is one of the best, most fascinating, intriguing. Oh my God. I thought you were about to, t I thought you were about to tell us about another book <laughs> that you just read. That's so nice. Great job with that. But let me tell you about what I have right <laughs> here, which is the trespasser by Tana French. No, I'm kidding. Um, okay. So no, but just like the, the scenes, especially towards the beginning of the book, when Mary is starting to work for Dr. Vogel and like, it's just the scenes with them in Dr. Vogel's limousine were so visceral to me. Like that feeling of meeting this woman who's, who's so accomplished and who you want to impress and who you want to like you. And then 
just not even like gender aside, just someone who is in power at a place where you hope to succeed and, and just like that, that idealization that comes with it. And then the slow fractures in that person's facade, like it's just so good. And like you said, the, the historical context of the time, which you obviously include as the backdrop to the book makes it like so interesting. And, and I think especially now, like I think the black and white like view of people has become like increased tenfold now, like the way things are. But I just, yeah, if you're an anti-hero person, if you're not like, are you okay? And if you are, (laughs) then you need to read this book. That's so nice, Devin. Thank you. But I also want to say off of what you were just talking about, there's a lot in your book and in the history of that time about how marriage really was a dangerous thing for women and kind of like a prison for women and how women really, really got the short side of the stick in (laughs) marriage, which is still kind of true a lot of times. And it ties into what we also need your expert opinion on today, which is the cultural phenom that is The Staircase. And I just want to say that my mom and I watched The Staircase when it originally aired on Showtime before there was streaming services. This was on-demand era, baby. I and like we had a disc. I feel like we had we like did. a DVD we set. De- we had a DVD set. We did. We were um, obsessed. Yeah. And so... I would like to pause, too, for our listeners and say, if you haven't watched The Staircase, if you're just starting it, there may be some spoilers coming up. Yes. Three, two, one. You can pause now and come back after you've watched. And I think I think Carolina might be including herself in that because the last time we tried to talk about the staircase, she did reveal she had only watched an episode and a half of the adaptation. And she her first comment on it was, "What was it? Would you call him James?" <laughs> she's like, she's like, I just want to say one thing about the staircase. So James. <laughs> You know what's funny is that I laughed out loud that she didn't know. <laughs> like, I laughed out loud. I don't loud. understand. Yes, I don't understand that, that I have been criminalized for being feeble-minded. You're and you want to yeah, put you it's, yeah. it's not you, for not knowing what it is, but it's the fact that you were so ready to talk about it. You actually pitched, like, doing a portion of the episode about the staircase when thinking that there was a character involved named James. But I think the sad part is that Devin and I are so into it that I agree. Uh, that I mean, obviously, like Michael is the guy's name. James is a similar name. Like, but that we we act like it's the, you didn't know the name of the president. That's how into it we are. Well, the staircase <laughs> you is acted. one of those. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was only gonna say. Okay. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> how dare you be so cruel to your quote unquote best friend? And I never listen. said best, but go on. I'm kidding, Carol. I am sick in bed, folks. I am sick in bed, and this is how she treats me. Oh, Devin, I didn't. I'm sick too. I have celiac disease. I have an autoimmune disorder. (laughs) (laughs) It's her celiac talking. It's the celiac talking. Okay, I'm going to assume you had gluten, and that's why you are. I am not going to send you to get a lobotomy, and I'm assuming that's why you are um, being so cruel to me today. But yes, you're right. Sometimes I like to talk about some shows before I have quote unquote seen them. Hence, you know, <laughs> big little eyes, the staircase, etc. Mom, let's talk about the stairs <laughs> that we know and love. The staircase is something that like when true crime had its comeback, when like the jinx came out and stuff, like I started to get kind of annoyed because people would be like, I'm watching this thing, the staircase. And I was like, cool. Like <laughs> I've already seen it three times, but um, I want to ask you like, what what initially drew you in and what were your first thoughts in your first viewing of The Staircase? Now we know it's maybe been six or seven times that you've viewed the documentary series. But in the beginning, what were your first reactions? And I've also read books and listened to podcasts. I'm obsessed with the case. Okay. I think what, uh, what, what drew me in immediately was, and people are very still split about this personally, and this is my opinion, I thought this man is a liar and a psychopath from the moment he started talking in episode one. I. And he did a lot of those, you know, for example, you know, when people lie, their voice gets very high every time he yeah. was telling a lie. He wa- he admitted he lied about it th- things, but, you know, people lie and they don't murder. So, um, but I was, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated, as Devin knows, by um, sociopaths and psychopaths. I love, I love to watch, I love an opportunity to watch a real one because I like to write about them, but I really love to observe 
a, a true sociopath and just watch. Like, I just, I feel like I could, you know, I just want to observe over and over again, every detail about they, the, the way they talk, the way they move, the way they think. Probably as a writer, I just want to absorb. I, I'm fascinated by them. I know. And they, there is so much footage of him. Like it really is like a masterclass in sociopathy. Cause it's like, there is so much footage of him just being around his house. And like you said, all his reactions to things. And I think like rewatching it, I, I rewatched it since the, um, sorry, there's like a car outside. Um, I rewatched <laughs> it since the, um, adaptation came out and because Colin Firth's per- performance like added amazing. more to my understanding of how like how complexly disturbed this man is and so i went back and 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 rewatched the documentary and i think you and i were watching a scene together where like they i think it was when they they find the blow poke in the garage yeah. um clayton finds it and then they're going like they're talking about what this means for the case and for michael peterson to just like lay down on the couch and be like yeah he's like this he's like with his arm over his head like i mean i don't know like what and it's just like you're that calm what's going on like you're that unaffected by this i have an anxiety attack when i like go to the pharmacy and they say i have to wait 15 minutes and this person is like (laughs) the murder weapon was just found in your garage and he's like well i mean i don't know i think what maybe i should testify i think the the documentary the film crew, they were French. And I think they were so surprised yeah. by the overt homophobia and that, that, that is a very much part of the story and yeah. um, the bigotry that they experienced. And they were very, I think really they didn't understand um, how Christian and um, you know, the prosecution, the female prosecutor was Freda. Yeah. She basically said, I can't, I'm she's this man was a bisexual. Bisexual, <laughs> and if you think his wife would put up with living with a bisexual, I mean, I, that was shocking. I think now it's shocking, hopefully, to a lot of Americans. But at the time, it was like twenty years ago. The French, you know, population was kind of like this poor man, and they yeah, they, right. they were blind. They were they were distracted by that. They thought, well, of course he's lying because people hate gay people in right. America so much. So I was surprised at the time that to see how biased the documentary was in favor of him. But then I thought, well. They were distracted by that. It was distracting to to see it on display like that, the hatred and the bigotry. No, I think also like rewatching the documentary, even now rewatching it, I think I was swayed by that the first time I watched it. And even this time it is like it. He's like a, a white man who is it's it's the trick of a white man who is quote unquote woke. Like you're like, oh, he's driving through like his area talking about yeah. wealth inequality. And you're like, so he must be he must have a heart of gold if he's actually a white man who recognizes his privilege. But then I love in the adaptation how I'm sure it's controversial, like with her family, the way they've chosen to go into like their creation of Kathleen's experience. But it was really helpful to me as a viewer because it's like, wait, in reality, this guy was just like doing his weird, like narcissistic trip of running for office. And she's having to like, fund that like his little yes. project it made me so mad because yeah, she, i just related where it's like oh he's actually just talking to hear himself talk and he thinks he knows everything about everything and then she's working so hard to yeah. fund his like little project of like running for office and she's the one paying all his bills and paying his kids bills i want you Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to steal a moment for yourself before the week ahead. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Guys, we have to talk about Patty, the first wife. We have I was, to. I was obsessed with her at the beginning. And this time I have gone back because I've now read several books and there's a lot about Patty that isn't covered in either of these things. But, Please educate us. Well, I, you know, I, and then some <laughs> of these books are very, you know, they, they have a very strong bias too. They're real crime books. So I can't say that any of them are factual, but this is my own, again, my own opinion. I strongly believe Patty was either there when the first staircase murder happened in Germany. She was either there when it happened, when, you know, her husband, I do believe, killed Liz Ratcliffe. And there were there were a few slips she did in the documentary where she actually said I was there. I believe she had a lot invested in helping Michael Peterson be found innocent of this case because she might have been an accessory after the fact or even during the fact of the first uh, murder. Not that, I don't think she was a murderer. She's dead now, so I hate to speak of her. But originally I thought, oh, she's very eccentric and odd. And then I thought, oh no, she's definitely deflecting. There's, she's not being honest. I felt so bad for the kids. Anyone who's grown up in homes with alcoholics or any other home where there's gaslighting, where there's lying. Secrecy. I, I could relate. I think a lot of people can relate to, um, you know, the kind of confusion and, and honestly, and I'm also, as Devin knows, I'm obsessed with cults. And there's something called the cult of family. And Michael mm-hmm. Peterson was the cult leader of that family. And these poor girls believed him, though every shred of evidence really shone a light on him having killed both of their mothers. And it was just too much. Some people can't, she just yeah. can't see it. They needed to believe in him because the... the- yes. And that's like how the cult of like conspiracy theories works too, where it's like, okay, if if I don't believe that there's a reason behind all of this, then I just have to accept that there's like climate change and we're all going to die basically, you know? Yeah. And like, that's how I feel like it probably might've been for them where it's like, they, they've been through so much tragedy to actually believe that like the one person left who like cared to look out for them was this evil is just too much. But you're right. It's like the footage of him interacting with the kids is... It almost is like a Manson thing where it's like he comes into the room and they're all like, daddy, dad, like, yeah. my, like, oh, my God, dad, remember when you used to walk around the house and tell us which thing used to like belong to us? And remember all our perfect Christmases together? And it's like, that's not normal. Like, I feel like that's I've never reacted to you and dad like that, where I'm like, I know, I wish you would, you but you will, you never do. No, but your parents are supposed to light up at you, not the other way around. Like, right. it's like they were so obsessed with him. and. It's interesting what you bring up about Patty because rewatching it, I'm like, first of all, like once you said the thing about like she's involved and she's lying, I was like, how the fuck did I ever not see this? Like she's, mm-hmm. I, I know she's a little bit off, but it's like when they're interviewing her, she missed up so many times. She can't make eye contact with anyone. And then there's that moment where the older son, um, is it Todd? Uh, Clayton's actually older, but I didn't know that. The good-looking one? Or the the, good lo- yeah, the hotter both- one. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, Clayton. Um, the hotter one <laughs> comes up to, in the documentary, and she, like, says hi to him, and his face turns bright red, and he can't look at her when he hugs her. Something is going on there. 
it's really interesting to me two things one of which i completely agree with like the manson following sort of especially when he finds out that he is going to trial they're convicting him of murder and he has to go to jail over the holidays and when he he sort of reacts plainly to it and his daughter immediately throws herself over him being like no dad yeah and it's this awful occurrence but that he's reacting completely i don't know if it's shock but i I have a feeling it's someone who is completely cut off from emotion i also think it's fascinating like you were saying the cult of family it reminds me of how there was a study done that proved your parent talking insulting another parent in front of their child is worse for the child than the parent directly insulting the child so basically we Mm. identify more with our other parent than we nearly do with ourselves especially when we're a child and we don't have a sense of self yet so they lost a mother they only have a father left that's a whole piece of their personality they only have left yeah it's not really their father either yes yes yeah that that is so interesting and and mom you were pointing out like where the girls don't want to was it testify or like oh they want they don't want to be interviewed and then michael peterson is like i would rather well i would rather go to jail than have you guys be uncomfortable so i get like that martyring thing and then they're like so oh manipulative. no 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 yeah like yeah. he's so manipulative so of manipulative. them i think that i really recognized in them i i i had a therapist say to me once uh, denial gets a bad rap we think of denial as mm. bad people who have experienced severe trauma especially childhood trauma especially within the family um often really develop they 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 create an idealized version of the person who actually caused them a lot of pain as a child and sometimes that really helps it really gets them through and you almost don't want to break that for them. And I felt when the girls were so emotional during the trial, especially when he was convicted, I know they were sad because their father, who they did think of him as their father, um, you know, he was going to jail. But I think, too, it was overwhelming because they also were faced with this thing that inside they probably were quite aware of that it was very likely he killed their real mother and and their mother that they grew to love so i i really watched them this time and i felt so terrible for all these adult children and i do to this day they were like it was just so hard you know that was the that was the hardest thing you know yes he was a murderer but what he did to his kids was so awful but i think also the societal narratives around like men and women in marriage especially at this time in the early 2000s, which also LOL that they like had to throw in that scene where he's like, oh, anyway, 9-11 just happened. And then they just, because <laughs> it's like, like in the adaptation, because it was like, it happened, they were married and the year she died was like around 9-11. So he's just yeah. like, wow, a plane crashed into the Twin Towers. Anyway, um, <laughs> but so I think like they talk about it in the adaptation and in the documentary a lot where it's like, Kathleen was married, I guess, before she had a daughter from a previous relationship. And when she met Michael, people in her family and around her talked about like, and he, he saved her. Like everything got better because she found him. Like he changed her life, all this stuff. And to me that reads, I'm not sure because I wasn't there, but it reads as like, oh, she finally found a man and he's going to help her raise her daughter. So now she's okay. Whereas in reality, like this guy, as you said, was just like a leech leeching off her. He didn't really have like he was a quote unquote author, but it's like she was so accomplished and obviously like still managing everything herself even after she married him. But there was this narrative of like, oh, once she found Michael, she was all good. And then her sisters who who had spoken that way of him, like immediately turned against him. I mean, her sisters are like two of the worst Karens of all time. But even so even though I agree with, with them about um, his guilt, like I don't want to stand with Candace, but. <laughs> but yeah, it's really interesting that it was treated as like, she found a man. She's good now. And it's like, mm, not so much. Interestingly, <laughs> I do stand with Candace in the fight with Monique on Real Housewives of Potomac. I understand <laughs> that's not related, but I just I'm want so to make that distinction. To watch this. You would very much enjoy. I actually like have complicated feelings about standing with Candace in that. But okay. Okay. Um, but yeah. 
So I just think it was interesting that it was like, oh, now that she has the husband, like that was her house, that giant house. All like, and they're like, oh, now she has the missing piece, Michael. Like she's married, and it's just so dark. Well, I guess it's a little bit sexist to say, you know, that's like makes him a leech. Where a lot of women are married and they don't, they're not considered parasites for not working if their husband, you know, Kathleen Arnold. But they're caretakers usually, right? Yeah, he didn't take care work. Yeah, no, he was at the gym. <laughs> all, all he was in the time. sauna specifically. Well, this is what I think is interesting too. And, and it's my kind of thesis from watching the staircase is that my whole question, especially as I started it was, is he a psychopath murderer or is he a psychopath man? Meaning like, is he just a narcissist who is in the wrong place at the wrong time, multiple times? <laughs> Is he self-centered to the point where a lot of men are, where he doesn't want to deal with female relationships in his life, whether they're his wife or his daughter, he just is dismissive. All he thinks about is himself. I feel like men can be this way. No, you're right. He could be profoundly narcissistic and have very you know, antisocial aspects to his personality and not have murdered those two women. This is where I think, this is the proof I think that he did. But what I don't understand is why people think he's innocent when he came in a house, his wife is bleeding profusely from the head. He calls 911 and never mentions the bleeding, which is obviously, you don't have to have medical training. You don't have to be an adult. You could be 12. And you see somebody who's lying, unconscious, bleeding. The first thing you want to do is, where's the blood coming from? I have to stop it. Like if right. your pet dog has that, you want to find the blood, you want to stop it. He calls 911 and... It, the call sounds just insane, but he mentions whether she's breathing or not, never mentions all the bleeding, which is, the, you know, basically she bled out. So that he was in the military, everybody in the military has uh, basic training in first aid. So he wasn't squeamish. He described scenes where he helped people who were very, very mangled in, in a war setting. So there's no excuse for him to not help his wife. He didn't. So yeah. that part too, it's, and that he called and said, my wife had an accident. She fell down the stairs. How would he know How that? How would he know he was, that? Yeah. Yeah. It looked to me like someone came in and bludgeoned her. Why wasn't he running around trying to hide from the intruder? All of it. Yeah. It, it all doesn't make sense. And it's kind of like, he, he is a really good actor. I actually thought that it was, it was interesting that they didn't want to have him testify because in the documentary, they showed him like doing a practice testimony and someone asked like, what do you think of when you think of Kathleen? And he like gets choked up. Like he knows how to act like he's, and maybe he is emotional for some other reason, but I do think he can be convincing when he talks about her. Like he even just did an interview about the adaptation and he was acting emotional and saying like, he doesn't want to have to watch her get killed again on the thing. And so he is very like effective. And I think but he manipulated cry for themselves. So the way he mm -hmm. was able to cry was he was crying his sadness about her death was how it affected him. Yeah. About, his sadness about, you know, so, but it looked, it works. It looks like he's sad that she's dead, but he's sad because right. of himself. Right. Of course, like the filmmakers were swayed by like spending so much time with him and, and the way they were kind of blown away by this American culture. And I do think her sisters, Kathleen's sisters, really epitomized like American culture in a gross way yeah. with like how they were kind of like overtly racist and like misogynist and all that. But um, I also didn't even know until I saw the adaptation about the relationship he had with the editor of the documentary. So that was like right. such a fascinating new thing. Did you find anything more out about that in your research? Uh, not yet, uh, but I don't think it, I think it says something about the ethics of that documentary. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I like that they showed she was falling in love with him while she was watching the footage. So yeah. she's she's actually, you know, the editor of a documentary really creates the narrative. Um, I actually deeply relate to that in a weird way because I feel, <laughs> like, I feel like in our like culture of dating now, it's like you go on an app and you just like look at like outtakes from someone's life. And you create a narrative based on like, mm -hmm. oh, it looks like they're nice. It looks like they love their mom. It looks like they love animals. They must be like sweet. Like, oh, they're a straight man who cares about something other than themselves <laughs> that has four legs. They must be like actually genuinely sweet and whatever. It's like, that's kind of what she was doing. And it's not, I think she was married at the time and then she like maybe left or she was divorced. But 
she was having trouble in her own love life and then had this person's life to watch unfold and like maybe create a narrative around like how that could work in her life. Or finally, like a man who seems to care about his children, a man who seems to care about social issues. And, and, um, I mean, they didn't even have Tinder back then. So maybe that was like (laughs) the only seemingly option she could find around. Um, but yeah, and it's also like that showed to me too, in the adaptation, it's like, most of the time when a woman comes into a man's life, they, there's a direct benefit. Like, it's like, there's just a direct improvement. Like she immediately starts trying to like advocate for him. She Mm. gets to know his family. She's like supportive to his kids. Like, and this happens so often with men who are convicted of (laughs) murder. Like a woman comes in, she's like, I'll help out. Like, sure. No, I mean, there's a huge thing of women who fall in love with terrible criminals. Murder groupies. Yeah, murder groupies. You know, they marry them. They want. They love them, and that's just you know, another form of pathology itself. But yeah, um, yeah, I think that I, I read a theory about that, which is interesting. Which is that it's like these are people with such profound fear of abandonment. Like this is a person who can't Got get away because he's locked in a cell. But um, but also, she. I think women are different than men, and she she probably felt very nurturing and like wanted. You know, she believed him and wanted to help him. And yeah. she saw him as a victim, and he would have taken advantage of that, of course. That's what he does. He right. wants people to feel sorry for him, and then he can use them. In my opinion, I don't want to get sued. Maybe No, some... I completely agree. Any final thoughts? Any final points of discussion with the show? Or I mean, obviously, we can say that Colin Firth kills it. Kills it, yeah. and I think... Tony Collette is brilliant, like no matter I mean, what she does. Tony Collette, forget it. She's out she's so good. And having to do those three different scenarios of how yeah. she was murdered, I mean, that's a, so taxing. I'm not an actress, but it seems like it'd be so frigging taxing. I mean, oh my God, yeah. I thought that was a little rough and, and not necessary. You did? To be honest. For especially the first time, I just thought, I don't, I don't know. I thought it was a gimmick which is fine if it's fictionalized, but given this woman's real death, it just felt, it felt strange to me. I didn't think it was necessary. I didn't think it was like visually cool at all. I just, I get it. It's like, okay, this possibly could have happened. No, this possibly could have uh-huh. happened. But right. which version do we believe? But I, I don't know. It just didn't work for me. I thought it was interesting that they took the trouble and I really think they did do try to be exact with the actual, uh, that was the defense's theory that she slipped and fell. And they were doing all the like biomechanics of how that could have happened. And when you saw it, it looked, well, maybe, you know, and then they showed the prosecution, you know, of him assaulting her. Oh, that, that looked real. So I think they were just trying to, I, I actually, I liked it, but again, I love, you know, I'm obsessed with true crime. So I'm not, that's, you know, I actually want to know everything I can about it, but I, I right. see where it might've been a bit much and right. Right. And gratuitous. Yeah. I didn't thought of it that way, but I think it, you're, I get your point. Yeah, but in general, I think both of the brothers are attractive, and and that is hard for me. Yeah, <laughs> no, in general, that's very true, and and I, well, we don't have to get into talking about the children because it is, uh, like, I feel bad for them, but there there's a striking similarity between them yeah, for not being real, true. for not being real siblings. Um, yeah, it really is, and in this whole thing is really just a fascinating look at the spidering effects of one male narcissist on all of these different people and a rich white male narcissist yes. and how, the, how he's treated by the, by and maybe the justice system, you know, did find him guilty, but how long was he in jail? Five years for killing two women. You know, yeah. it is kind of a, a look at our society and our just, that's why they wanted to do this documentary. This French crew wanted to show the American justice system. And they did, they really showed our bigotry, they showed how a white man uh, with money could uh, buy himself a really good defense. And so a lot of it, even if you're not into, you know, crime or murder stuff, it's just a good, interesting look at, um, again, the the disparities in our culture and and, um, in in our access to justice, social justice, Mm -hmm. which is very... um, no, I think that that's actually like the, the the most interesting thing about the owl theory is like the extent people would go to to try to come up for like how this 
like amicable, charismatic white man actually didn't do it. And it's like this crazy thing where they're like looking at specimens, like thinking about exhuming the body to be like, it could have been an owl from a tree that followed her inside and then scrape like, no. Yeah, Um, anything. Yeah, But yeah, but then think about like the people who are wrongfully convicted. um, Or just shot, you know, dead. Just shot dead, yeah. black and, you know, you happen to be in their apartment. I mean, it's just, you know, there's that too. There's that too. There's truly that too. Well, if either of you have any final thoughts, feel free to share them now. My final thought is this conversation was so fascinating, so enjoyable. Thank you guys so much because I am going to be doing a few podcasts this week and this is really good practice, but also this is the best one I've done so far. Like it's, you guys have asked the best questions and are the most professional. Do you want to pitch some of your upcoming appearances? Oh yeah. So on June 2nd, today, Tonight, I'm going to be at an unlikely story in Plainville, Massachusetts. And the very next day, I'll be at one of my favorite bookstores, which is RJ Julia in Madison, Connecticut. And I will be doing various events in Pennsylvania. Go on my website, www.annleary.com. But I wanted to tell you, well, actually, Carolina, you're in LA. I don't have an LA event yet, but I will. But uh, Devin, tell all your friends on June 9th. I will be at the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn, which is, you know, I know kind of where you live and all your friends live. And I'm going to be in conversation with Maude Newton. Guys, if you haven't read Ancestor Trouble, you've got to read this book. I read your New York Times by the book article, and I'm fascinated by the fact that mice whose parents have been injured in some way or sensitive to something because of their injury, their children have the same reaction. Exactly. You have to read the book because Maud explains it better. I thought that was pretty good of my mommy and daddy mice example, but <laughs> maybe, maybe Maud gets it better. So June 9th, Center for Fiction in New York. Um, and then we'll post more of your events on our Instagram. Yeah, you can um, always go on my website and I hope people like my book. And if you do, thank you. The Foundling. The Foundling, ladies and gentlemen. And my mom's Instagram is at Ann Leary at A-N-N-L-E-A-R-Y. By the way, I have a new Instagram. It's at Devin underscore Hunter underscore Leary. It's on our podcast page. So please follow me there because I have like no followers now and it's really embarrassing. Yeah, what happened there? Anyway, you can tell me later. I'll tell you later. Um, okay. <laughs> Mom, thank you for being here. We thank love you. Thank you for having me on your fabulous and very popular podcast. Thank you so much. I feel You honored. always bring some fun. Thank you. I hope talk soon, you guys. Okay, bye. bye. Right now, find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.